Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, in the Pew Bible in front of you, that's page 676. While you're turning there, I'll go ahead and say a prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. Please now, Lord, teach us from your word. Holy Spirit, no matter what I say up here, uh, impress upon people's hearts that which you would have them learn and ponder today. In Jesus' name, amen. Just as a way of review, uh, this is our fourth message in the Matthew series. Uh, we, I preached a couple of, of passages, and then uh, had there were about three weeks that, uh, that I didn't, and now, now we're back into it. Um, that first sermon, you remember, it was just the long list of names, Jesus' own genealogy, and the, the, the point, the message there was that Jesus redeems your family history. Um, there are people in that uh, genealogy who they had common lives, maybe a little bit more interesting lives or more interesting stories than most people, but then Jesus comes along, enters into their family history, and suddenly their, their, uh, their, their story has uh, significance in the whole plan of God's salvation. You know, the Ruth and Boaz story, all of that is, is a very nice story. It's a very nice, uh, even romantic story uh, for everybody to read, but when you put Jesus as their uh, descendant, guess what? It now becomes significant in the whole scheme of salvation. And then you have people in his history like Jehoiakim or Jehoiakim who were absolute knuckleheads and did some very bad things and brought idol worship to a height in Israel. And Jesus comes along and he's one of their descendants too. And guess what he does? He redeems the whole family. The whole family, uh, Christ's whole family history now becomes redeemed, now becomes a good family, a family I want to come from, you know? Whereas before, it was not. It was, there were a lot of people with very checkered pasts, and you probably have, have felt the, the same thing at different times in your own family history. Maybe some of the people in your family history have a, a very checkered past, and you've said to yourself, I don't know that I want to be from this family. But if you let God do a work in your life, you can uh, be part of redeeming your family's history, your family's story, and people uh, will look at you from outside and say, you know what, I would like to be a part of that family. And then you tell them how to redeem their family's history by believing in Jesus Christ. Uh, in the second sermon, we talked about um, how this prophecy, this thing that happened in the time of Isaiah that sort of uh, foreshadowed what would happen with Jesus. Behold, the virgin will conceive. And that child in the, in the Old Testament, the child spoken of in the Old Testament, uh, was a source of hope and a, and a proof that God was moving. And then here comes Jesus. And what is Jesus to Mary and Joseph but a proof that God is moving and God is doing something very special uh, in your time. And then the last sermon that I preached in this series uh, was part of chapter 2, or all of chapter 2, and it's where the Magi come to present gifts to Jesus, uh, and then Herod, uh, does he, he kills all the boy babies in Bethlehem, and that event uh, is called the slaughter of the innocents in art and in history, the slaughter of the innocents. And then Jesus and his family all head to Egypt. And what it really shows is how, um, you remember in, in Romans, Paul said that salvation, Jesus has come and salvation has come first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And Jesus is born into uh, the Jewish nation among the Jewish people. He is what God has been bringing their, their nation all to is, is to bring Christ into the world. Uh, but he's not just for them. He is there for them. Remember, even in Jesus' own preaching, he said, I came, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, he's first for the Jew. But even from his birth, 
even from God announcing his birth, it was also for the Gentiles. Pagans from thousands of miles away were told, were told in pagan ways. It was always, always fascinating to me that God put a star for astrologers to know that the Christ had come. And then he even sent them down to Egypt. And in, in Egypt, they didn't know it, but they had the, 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 the privilege of hosting the Christ child for a few years while his family was down there. But it was bad news for Herod. Christ's coming is good news for the nations, good news for anybody who's looking for salvation, but anybody who's looking to oppress, dominate, take God's glory for themselves, Jesus is bad news for them because he's going to break down their stronghold. Today we're getting into John the Baptist story. And I was just, when I was thinking about this this morning, uh, um, uh, and I prepared this a long time ago, okay, okay. But when I was looking at it, reviewing and, and, and uh, um, looking at it this morning, what, something stark kind of hit me. This is the story of Jesus, and it is a very powerful story of Jesus, and Jesus has yet to say a word in the book of Matthew. Not until next week's sermon is Jesus going to say anything yet. At this point, he's already affecting people's lives. He's already um, uh, giving people hope and encouragement, and he hasn't said a word in ministry yet at this point. That's significant to me. That's significant to me. All right. Let's get into this. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist, and I have to say this. Uh, I, I used to be a missionary in China, if you didn't know that. Uh, and there was a, uh, a woman who was part of our team over there, and she was talking about John the Baptist with a Chinese person who, you know, they were speaking English, uh, but that person didn't learn Bible in English. That person learned Bible in Chinese, and now they're speaking a foreign language. And that person didn't call him John the Baptist. She called him John the Baptizer. And I would prefer to call him that. And if I can remember it, if I can do it, uh, uh, you know, it just comes out John the Baptist every time I talk. But I'm going to call him John the Baptizer every time I can because he's not a Baptist, as in he goes to First Baptist Church. He's a baptizer. He's John the Baptizer. All right. In those days, John the Baptizer came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And I'm sure he said a lot more than that, but what Matthew records here is this is the theme, the message that he has got for everybody. He said a whole lot of other things, I'm certain. He gave big, long sermons, and he expounded on that thought uh, day in and day out for years, but that is what all of his message, all of his preaching, everything that he's got, it can be fit very tightly right into there, into that little sentence, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And uh, some of your Bibles might say is near or has come. And maybe there's a difficulty in translating or something like, like that, but there's an idea that it has come and it's near, but it's also sort of coming. It's, it's here and it's coming at the same time. It's here and it's coming, okay? What, what am I supposed to do with that? I'm supposed to have the hope in the times that I don't see it and don't know it. I'm supposed to have the hope that it is near, it is around me, and I'm supposed to have the hope and encouragement that one of these days I will see it. It will be very obvious to me and everybody else. All right, verse 3. Whew, it's going to take a long time to get through this if I stop after every verse. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. And what does the voice say? Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather, leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. 
So God is about to move. And uh, one of the passages, one of the sermons, maybe the first sermon that, uh, that I preached in this series, talk, I talked about how um, it wasn't just the Jews that knew the Messiah was coming. And they, they wouldn't all call him the Messiah, but there was a sort of a palpable feeling all around the Roman Empire. Greeks and Romans both knew somebody is coming. There, there's sort of this religious awareness or this awareness that uh, the great God is about to do something and maybe everything is just going to change under this new king. And they were all kind of uh, looking for him. And when people expect God to start doing something, when people know that God's about to show up, when people know that um, a big big move in history is about to, to happen, what, what do they do? They get very conservative with their worldview, with their belief, okay? And so I think most of the Jewish people at this time, uh, commoner and religious leader alike, they, they may have all been getting a little bit loosey-goosey with things, all right? They might have been sort of taking it lightly. It's just a heritage. It's just our culture. It's just uh, the way we live. It's just our lifestyle. But with the feeling that the Messiah is coming, everybody uh, starts to hear John the Baptist say, God is coming. Jesus is coming. Uh, the Messiah is coming. And what do we need to do to prepare for God to do something? If you want God to do something in your life, if, and we all have these sort of highs and lows in our Christian life, but when we need God to show up, when we want God to show up, what do we do? We start getting a lot more faithful with our spiritual life. We start praying more. We start reading our Bible more. We start going to church more. It, you, you, sometimes as a, as a preacher, as a pastor, you can almost tell who's in crisis because they showed up that day, okay? Uh, if if we don't, they don't show up for months and months at a time, but then they show up and you say, oh, okay, I wonder what's going on in their life because that's what they do. That's the pattern. That's the pattern. When they start to get into a crisis mode, they show up and they start reading their Bible and they start praying and they, they really do make great strides. They really do make great strides. And then, uh, after the crisis has passed, what happens? Uh, people get more and more relaxed again. Well, John the Baptist is out here, and people have this feeling that the Messiah is coming, and he's saying it. He's saying it loud and clear, and people say, all right, I haven't been a very good uh, Jewish person so, uh, for the last few years. It's just been sort of a culture and a heritage for me, but guess what? I think God's about to move. I think something real is about to happen, so I'm going to start taking my spiritual life more seriously. And you can tell, you can tell how serious they are because they go out to the Jordan to see John the Baptist. Don't think that he was in Jerusalem. Don't think that he was just down by the creek. Don't think that, uh, that he was very near. No. People went on several day hikes to go out to where he was. Think of, think of it this way. Uh, uh, um, wilderness means something different in the Bible than it does in Maine. You've got a lot of wilderness here, and it's very green, and there's a lot of water. Um, wilderness, when, when the Bible talks about it, is way out there in the hilly, rocky desert where there's no water to drink, and there's only scorpions to eat, okay? That's the wilderness to them. It's a deadly, dangerous place. Of course, the wilderness here can be a very deadly, dangerous place too. But imagine if all of us got convinced that God was about to do a move, and so as a group, we all said, that's it. We're going to Moosehead, all right? There's a place where here's Moosehead, and then the Kennebec River flows out of it, and there's a place where you can cross it on foot, but there's a very deep trout pool over there somewhere, and that is where this guy is baptizing people. And he is a rough-looking character. He doesn't have electricity for his electric razor out there, and he hasn't been to the store in a very long time. And, a lot of, and so he doesn't have a new razor. 
And so his beard is getting bushy, all right? And there are plenty of men with bushy beards here in Maine, okay? Plenty of them. Um, but he's out there, and he's wearing a camel hair clothing, and he's wearing a leather belt. And it, apparently that's unique. Nobody's wearing leather in Jesus' day. The fine, the fine cloth is linen. You want to wear linen, or maybe you want to wear wool, something like that. Uh, you don't wear things that just you find out there in the wild. So here's John the Baptist out here in the wild, and so it was an arduous trip for you to get to him. And then when you got there, he yelled and screamed at you. For churches these days in the, in the United States, if you want to have, uh, if you want to plant a church that's uh, really big and successful, uh, it's sort of the same thing as, as business. What's the first rule in business? Location, location, location. And uh, uh, for churches, it's really the same thing. You, you don't find huge churches in the woods or out in the middle of nowhere, okay? Where do you find huge churches? You find them right off the highway, right there where they're very visible, everybody can see them, and everybody can get to them very easily. We actually have a very good location right here on a highway across from a, a landmark, and anybody who's been around here for a while knows, you, you just say the old Robinson's nursing home, everybody knows where it is, okay? And yet, we don't get as much foot traffic as John the Baptist did. People were coming to him in droves to, so that they could hear him yell at them and tell them that their life was bad. These days, very trendy-looking, slick, uh, clean-shaven, faux-hawk, skinny-jean-wearing preachers sugarcoat the gospel for anybody who would show up. All right? And I'm not down on those types or anything, okay? But here we've got John the Baptist, the roughest-looking character you've ever seen with not a sugar-coated gospel at all. He's getting straight into your heart and soul, and people can't get enough of it. Why? Because they know God's about to move. And what do they do when they get out there? They stand up and say, I've got problems. Here are my sins. Let me list them for all of you to hear. And then, John, will you baptize me? Yes, I'll baptize you. Have you got anything else you want to confess before I... Yeah, okay, okay, this one too. This is the one I was hiding. I'll tell you that one too. All right, now come over here and I'll baptize you. That is a very different church experience than most of us have. Most of us come to a very nice church, not too far from our houses, to hear a, a very nice cleaned up person try to give an eloquent exposition of why you ought to live like Jesus. And then I'll say, all right, uh, I don't need a list of your sins. I'll baptize you. Uh, you know, nobody needs to confess here. We, don't, we certainly don't do this out here in front of everybody. No. And that's what's happening over where John the Baptist is. They're in that region beyond the Jordan. People are taking their spiritual lives very seriously. They're taking their sins very seriously. They're getting them out in the open. It's incredible what's happening. And a very interesting thing to me um, kind of comes up in, in this question. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Does my sin inhibit God? Does my sin inhibit God? And I'll give it, I guess I'll give you the answer is, I think yes and no. Yes and no. If God wants to move, nobody can stop him. Always put that out there. I'll always put that out there. If God wants to move, nobody can stop him. No matter how sinful anybody is or how much they resist, just ask Jonah. No matter how sinful you are, no matter how disobedient you are, if God wants to move, he moves. And nobody stops him. But were you looking for God to do a work in your family? Were you looking for God to do a work in your marriage? 
Were you looking for God to do a work in your kids and in your work life and in your home life and in your church life? And yet you were hanging on to sins that you, you're part of the problem, but you're not going to repent of anything. And yet you want God to make everything perfect and smooth and much better, but you're going to hang on to your sins? Hooey. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. If I want a better marriage, you know what the first thing I need to do is? Get on my knees and confess to the Lord. I'm not that good of a husband. Lord, make me a better husband. I'm not that good of a wife. Make me, Lord, a better wife. I'm not a very good parent. Lord, make me a better parent. It all needs to start with uh, confession and realization that if I want anything to improve around here, if I want God to move in anything around here, I've got to start being obedient. I've got to submit my life before him and say, Lord, I'm filthy. Clean me up. And our whole culture has this problem, that we see problems that other people need to repent of. And we don't say, hey, you know what? I've got some things in my life that, that I need to clean up. I'm contributing to society's ills. Even if I don't see, maybe I don't think I'm that powerful. Maybe I think my influence is that, that small. But if you're part of the problem, then you're still part of the problem. And our, our culture has some serious problems. I was listening to a sermon series late, uh, recently, uh, and it's something that I sent out in the email newsletter. Um, and it, it was about sex, dating, marriage, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, Andy Stanley was the one that preached it. And he, and he said, he, he, gave, he does a lot of good research before his, his uh, sermons. He asks people questions. What is the problem? What do you think is, is the deal? And he was talking to single people about what is wrong with the dating world these days. And some of the answers were hilarious. Uh, but there was one that, I, I, that he struck upon that I said, oh, yeah, that's, that's a big deal. And he was talking about hookup culture. And, he's, and, and this person said, there used to be this question, maybe back 15 years ago or 20 years ago, people would sort of ask, how long do we date before we can have sex? Okay? All right. That was, that was sort of, the, that was sort of the, the, the question. How long do we date before we have sex? And the, the question now, the way it's changed now, if you didn't know, is sort of, how long do we have sex before we actually have to start admitting that we're dating? How long do we have sex before I actually ask you out, before I declare love for you, before I commit to you in any way? How long can we have this casual sex before we actually realize or, or admit that there's a, this actually is forming a relationship? We didn't want that. We just, we just wanted the fun. that's a big deal in our culture. And I think it's something that it's going to come back and it's going to really bite us um, one of these days. And I hope that people start realizing younger and younger that that kind of view of casual sex is bad and it hurts. And it won't be long before we really start seeing the fruit of it all, the fruit of it all. I think, I think we do now. Uh, that series is called Love, Dates, and Heartbreaks. And so how much more heartbreak does hookup culture bring? Uh, because you remember when Harry met Sally, okay? So this is, how, this is how long this problem's been. This is a movie from a long time ago. I don't know, as a good Christian, I'm not going to recommend his, uh, movies up here, but it, it had some real poignant moments uh, in it. And there was this question of, can, can a man and woman be friends, okay, uh, 
And then what if sex enters, enters the picture there? And I think we all know from that movie, from Seinfeld, from every sitcom you ever watched, the moment you put sex in any equation, you just did what the Bible proves, okay? The Bible says the two become one flesh. And how hard is it to rip flesh from flesh? It's very hard. So we've got to repent of this casual sex because it creates incredible heartbreak. The second thing we've got to do, I think, as a society is sober up. We've got to sober up. Um, drugs used to be uh, sort of, um, there's sort of, it was this fringe drug culture in any town or in any, any society, but it's become so mainstream that it's sold on Main Street quite openly. And I understand, oh, it's for medicinal purposes. It's for medicinal. It's not to get high. It's, 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 it's all for medicinal purposes. It makes you feel so much better, except can you really function when you're under that influence? And I just don't know that there's been enough research to come by that says, no, this is the wonder drug that everybody says that it is. It cures everything. It's amazing. My life was never complete without this. I think if you look at the lives of people who use marijuana, medicinally or otherwise, all the time you'll look at them and you'll say, I'm not sure this is a life I want to emulate. This is not what I want to happen to me. I wanted, I wanted something different. I may have to cope with a pain or a discomfort or a symptom or something like that without it, but at least I can function mentally, okay? Several weeks ago on Facebook, memes were going around, and there was um, some celebrity or rock star that was talking about marijuana, and, and they were talking about how it is not the gateway drug. Everybody calls it the gateway drug, and it is the gateway drug. I think you, I dare you to go find me somebody who uses meth or heroin all the time that didn't have marijuana first, okay? But what they were saying was the gateway to it all is actually abuse and trauma, okay? I'll, I'll say touche. I'll say you've got, you've got me on that. I, I believe that so much of the drug abuse in our culture really does come from the past uh, abuse and trauma and people trying to get out of it, people trying to forget it, people trying to not be affected by all the things that have happened to them uh, in their life. And what that really points to me is that the gateway for so many social ills that we have is not really just a drug, it is hopelessness, hopelessness. People start seeing that in my body, I, I'm hopeless in my body, give me something to smoke, give me something to drop, give me something to shoot up. I'm hopelessness in all my relationships. Give me something to mask the pain. I'm hopeless in uh, dealing with things that have happened to me in the past. Give me something to make me forget it. But you don't forget it. We don't start dealing with all of our emotional baggage, the abuse and trauma that has happened to us in the past, and we all just try to medicate. Come on, what's going to happen to us if we're a complete society where nobody has a clear mind? This last week in California, there was a, a pastor that committed suicide. Uh, and he's the second one that ha has hap that's done this in the last year or so. He, was, he, he battled with depression and hopelessness all of his life. And he started a ministry even uh, to try to reach out to people. Sometimes when people start a ministry to reach out to a certain type of person, what they're really doing is trying to uh, start a ministry to minister to them because they need it so badly. Okay, And I hope that he helped a lot of people. I think that he probably did. Um, but ultimately, he still was taking on burdens. 
and here I am judging what all was going on in his life. But the hopelessness was still there. The hopelessness was still in him. And so he saw his life of hopelessness and depression and said, it's cheap, I need to get rid of it. It's cheap, I need to get rid of it. And in John the Baptist's day, life was cheap. Look what Herod did to all these children with no thought at all about consequences, with no thought about, oh, these are human beings. Can I possibly do this to these human beings? No, didn't even think about that. Just ordered the slaughter of the innocents. Slavery everywhere. Markets up there where you can literally buy people. Women as commodities. Even among the Jewish people, when, you, when, when people were getting married, there's a bride price, and you barter, and you, 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 trade, you trade women as commodities. And we often think of ourselves as being so much better but probably we're not. Life still cheap. Abortion still happens all the time. Um, people, people try to promote and, um, and, and want to legalize euthanasia. euthanasia. Uh, physicians-assisted suicide is now a thing that comes up quite a bit in our, in our uh, culture and in the public debate. Life is still cheap today. And slave markets, okay. Open slave markets, sanctioned slave markets, gone. But human trafficking is still all over the place. The, the trafficking of people from Asia to the Americas, I mean, it's all over the place. Huge, huge problem. And women as commodities, yeah, still there, still there. Uh, pornography is as bad in our society as it's ever been. It used to be um, that there was a small group of women who uh, allowed themselves to be used as porn stars for a, a, an industry that was basically centered in California. And now it's done for free with any, from any dude with a webcam that can convince a girl with low self-esteem that this is all she's worth and this is the only way that she'll get attention. It's all over the place. And for that charge, it's the men that have to start repenting in that one because they're the ones driving the demand. But folks, it's not just the obvious sinners that need to repent. Let's get back into our passage in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one, comes the Messiah, comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff, chaff with unquenchable fire. It's not hard to convince some people that they're sinners, okay? If you've got a drug prostitute who's in jail and her life is in absence, you're not, you're not going to convince her that her life's in shambles. It's not going to be hard to convince her. You're going to look at her and she's going to say, my life is in shambles. Have you got any kind of good news for me? Some people just know my behavior has led to the absolute destruction of my entire life. I know something's wrong. I need help. But there are other people out there that it's very hard to convince them that they have any kind of problem. Uh, false theologians, maybe just any theologian out there, 
very pious, highly pious uh, Puritan types, they still need to repent too. They still have things that they need to repent of as well. But it's very hard to convince them that they need something from the Lord. They are often consumed with or, or filled with this pride and this sort of gladness that they're not like those other people out there. When I was reading this, I, I said to myself, I wonder why, why did these guys come out there? Why did the Pharisees and Sadducees even go out there? Why did they seek out John the Baptist? What were they looking for, for uh, from him? And then I thought, okay, uh, for me, as a religious type, as a preacher type, okay, what, when, when a new preacher comes on the scene, what do I do? I always want to see what this person's about. And I, I don't always, I'm going to just say that this is the worst it gets in me. Most of the time, I really do listen to other preachers because I know I need a sermon. I give sermons all the time. I need sermons a lot. I listen to two or three sermons a week, okay? But when a new preacher comes on the scene, uh, uh, in my worst, what will I often do? I'll listen to this guy and I'll say, all right, am I going to claim this guy or am I going to shun this guy? Okay? Somebody's coming out. They've got new ideas, new theology. They're very, very popular are, am I going to be somebody who sort of gets on their bandwagon with them, or am I going to say, no way, stay away from that person? And now, as the sort of shepherd for this flock, I, do, I feel like I do have two responsibilities. If there's a false teacher out there, I really do need to warn you. I really do need to tell you who to stay away from, okay? Better be careful, because if somebody just has a different perspective than me, it doesn't make them a heretic, only if they really are a false teacher, Okay? Only if they really say Jesus is somebody different and salvation means something different. Okay, that, that's where they're getting out there. Um, and I also need to tell you, hey, you got to check this guy out. You got you to gotta listen to this person. You got to read this person's book because you need more than just me and my input into your life. I hope that you have a, another favorite preacher besides me. I know I'm number one on the list, but I don't know who's on number two on your list, but you need to have a strong number two on your list of somebody else that you like to listen to somebody else who has input into your life. But I have a feeling that the Sadducees and Pharisees were like me at my worst, where they go out there and they say, we don't know much about this guy. He hasn't put out a book or a treatise statement of everything that he believes. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they did not agree with each other. They were at, at odds with each other. So they both went out there, and the Sadducees are saying, well, I wonder if this guy is with us or with them. And the Pharisees are saying, I wonder if this guy is with us or with them. And they both get out there, and they say, okay, we'd like to hear your message. We'd like to hear your treatise. We'd like to know if you're in our camp or their camp. And then John the Baptist says, you brood of vipers. I don't like either one of you. You're both wrong. I'm not going to be in either one of your camps. And they're like, wait a second. This brood of vipers thing, is this us or them? Who are you talking about? I'm talking about both of you. Well, how can that be? There's only the two of us. There's only the, these two opposing sides. No, it's not binary. It is in some way. You're either right or you're wrong. But there's a whole lot of ways to be wrong. There's only one right, and that is what Jesus says, and that is what Jesus believes. His theology, his doctrine, because it all comes from him. But there's a whole lot of other ways to be wrong. The Pharisees and Sadducees both come out there thinking, either we're right or they're right, and they go away realizing, hey, we're, he says we're both wrong. We're both wrong. And so we who are mature Christians need to take this repentance thing very seriously as well. We almost always don't have outward sins. We don't have obvious sins. We don't have sins that anybody can look at our, our life and our lifestyle and just know what's wrong with us. Uh, we're not like some of the other obvious sinners in the world or whatever. Our sins are often buried very far below the surface, deep in the heart 
where the heart still hasn't been transformed by the love of God, by the Holy Spirit. We have what Rich Mullins called misguided piety. We have piety. We live good, clean lives, but it's often a misguided piety. We have rules for things that are, are that really it's not a sin to do this at all, but we've got, a, we've got a system. We've got a way of thinking about things. I would do this, but I would never do this. And Jesus would either say, well, they're both either okay or they're both wrong, something like that. So any of us who are who, are, who consider ourselves mature, always be careful if you consider yourself mature, but any of you who have been a Christian for many, many years, you know the Bible backwards and forwards, you've been in, you're very comfortable in church, you serve in church, you are a mature believer, you're, you're a believer that other believers go to. If you're that kind of person, remain humble. God still wants to do a work in your life. And when sinners sin, it's bad, but when saints sin, it's worse. Because people who have been Christians for a very long time in leadership at church, boy, can they mess things up. The average sinner comes in across, uh, off the street, comes in here and, and, and causes a hootenanny or whatever. No big deal. The pastor, the elders of a church cause a kerfuffle. A church sometimes can't recover from it. Okay, Be careful, mature Christian. And there are consequences. What John the Baptist is talking about here there are consequences to whether you accept or reject, to whether you repent or don't repent. On an individual level, uh, what is the consequence of accepting his or rejecting his message, of ex- accepting or rejecting Christ's message? With John the Baptist, uh, it's repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. If you reject, if you accept his message, then you're ready for the Messiah when the Messiah comes. If you reject his message, then you're going to miss out what God is doing in the world. With Christ's message, it's a much bigger deal. Be part of what I'm doing, Christ says, and experience true life, new life, eternal life. Reject what I'm doing in your life, what I want to do in your life, and what I'm doing in the world. Feel greater separation than you've ever felt. Feel death. Feel hell in the end, even. On a church level, it's different. You see, the church in the world is sort of this conduit this conduit of what God wants to do in the world, the, the blessings of all God sort of flow through a people. They, they, they come from the heavens in the form of rain and in the form of this common grace that God gives everyone in the whole world. But the special blessing that God wants to give, it comes to the church. Now, at this time, the church had not been formed yet. And, and uh, um, John the Baptist is talking about that. When he says, we have Abraham as our father, they were, what they were doing is they were taking on this identity of God's chosen people, rightly so. We are God's chosen people. And God's good work in the world is always going to be done through us because we are his people. We are the conduit for special blessings, special revelation. If God's got a message for the world, it's going to come through us. Okay, That's the Jewish nation. These days, it's the church. It's all believers in Jesus Christ. The church is that conduit for God's work in the world, the special work that he does in the world. And so if there's a blessing that needs to happen in the city of Gardner, uh, we need to do it. If there's a need in Gardner, we need to address it. If there's a need, um, e- even in the Gardner community, the larger Gardner community, we need to know about it, we need to be praying about it, we need to be saying, hey, is God calling us to be part of the solution to this problem? And I hope the answer is yes. We're actually very well poised, we as a church, we're very well poised to do a great work. We have 
this wonderful building in a great location, debt-free. Awesome. We are well-funded. We've got some money in the bank. How are we going to use this to bless the community? How are we going to use this to serve the community? We've got plenty of people here who know the Bible, can serve um, by teaching the Bible, and can serve with their hands giving to the needy or whoever, whatever the need of Gardner is. More than likely, we've got somebody in this church who has an idea and who has the Holy Spirit inside of them to do that good work, to bless this community. We've got great potential. We are poised to, do, to be that conduit for God in this town, us and any other church around us. But, but, if we're not willing to be a part of that, if we're not interested in doing that, if we're interested in coming to our building and enjoying our building, if we're interested in buying more things just, just for us, then God's going to say, it's conduit, it's plugged. Something's happened here. I've got a church here that I'm trying to funnel blessings to the world. There's blockage down there somewhere. What is going on? If we take all of his blessings and hoard with them, then he'll say, this conduit doesn't work. I'm going to take all these blessings out of the top of the funnel I'm going to put them somewhere else. All the funding, I'll put it somewhere else. All the the people who really wanted to do something, really wanted to work, I'm going to take them and send them somewhere else. That facility that they have, I'm going to give it to somebody else. Somebody who will use it. Somebody who will allow me to bless this town, this region, and spill off onto the rest of the world too so that everybody will know God is doing a mighty work. But what's John the Baptist saying? If nobody, if you don't want to be the conduit, the blessing of God, what does he say? You're like a tree, but if you're not bearing fruit, the axe is poised, going to cut you down. It's going to turn you into firewood. Uh, what's he got in his hand? He's got the winnowing fork. Uh, there's so many visuals of, of judgment in Jesus' own teaching. I separate the sheep and the goats. I separate the wheat from the chaff. It's a time of separation. You're with us or you're not with us. You're with Jesus or you're not with Jesus. So God has chosen us. Hallelujah. Will you choose him back? Will you choose his work for your life's work? Will you choose his priorities as your priorities? Will you use the mind he's given you for more than getting drunk or high? Will you use the body he's given you for the joy of serving him more than for the joy of illicit sex? Will you use the mouth he's given you for cursing or for blessing? Will you use the hands that he's given you to serve people or to serve a ball or something like that? John's message was meant to make people take stock and reprioritize. It's his message for us too. Look at your life. It is God's gift to you. Use it wisely. You won't miss out when you say no to the world's pleasures, I promise you. What did Jesus say? Lose your life for the sake of the kingdom of God, and you'll find true life. In a moment, we're going to have an altar call. And it's not something that I do here uh, very much, but I felt like this sermon was going to be so intense, this passage is so intense, John's message is so intense that I wanted to give you a chance to respond. So if the Holy Spirit has been convicting you and you feel like, hey, you know what, I need to do business with the Lord. I need to get on my face before a holy God, and I need to tell him... um, I need to confess to him, and I need to have him reshape and reprioritize all my life. 
then here's what you should do. You should come forward. Somebody will pray with you. Uh, we'll have a couple of elders up here. Uh, any other, anybody else can come up here and pray with you, guide you in your prayer, guide you in your thought processes. But I just hope that you'll submit to the Lord, submit your life uh, to the Lord. Whatever you leave on the altar as a sacrifice to Jesus won't compare with the blessings that he'll give back to you. I believe that, and I hope that you do too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for people bold, who are bold like John the Baptist, people who will tell it like it is, who will give it to us straight, and who will remind us that we need to reprioritize in our lives. Holy Spirit, please be doing a work in our mind and in our hearts right now. Show us what we need to change, what we need to reprioritize, what we need to refocus on. Lord, give us a sense of purpose, a sense of mission in the world. Show us how we're supposed to be the conduit of your blessing into this community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.